Good morning. In today's headlines, former President Trump says indictments keep pushing his poll numbers up. And with one more, he can close out the election. We have takeaways from Trump's weekend rallies and the latest on his legal battles. The U.S. responds after China and Russia sent 11 warships near Alaska. The incursion was seen as another reminder of authoritarian aggression. Local governments grappling with homelessness, illegal immigration set to be a main driver. New York City looks for alternative housing sites like Central Park, and the number of family and shelters in Massachusetts jumps 80-fold in a year. Store clerks in California beat a would-be robber who was trying to steal a bunch of cigarettes. Now police say they could be facing assault charges. Elon Musk offers to pay legal expenses for anyone mistreated by their employers after a Twitter post. We have the details. Dangerous predators, fierce winds, and freezing temperatures. We hear from a contestant of the hit show Alone who survived in northern Saskatchewan. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, August 7th. Yes, and Trump says he has powerful grounds for requesting the recusal of Judge Tanya Chutkin. Yeah, but he didn't mention what exactly those were. That's right, and usually people seek out a recusal if they suspect personal bias or things like that. Well, it's almost never granted, so apparently it's not really recommended for defendants to um, to uh, ask for it. Well, yeah, now that the that they do that, that the defendant has to go through a whole trial with the judge that they've already pointed the finger at. But regardless, we're glad you're here and we're starting with an update in former President Trump's January 6th related case. On top of Trump calling for the federal judge overseeing the case to recuse herself, he's also suggesting his lawyers could be asking for a change of venue. Trump is accused of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. He pleaded not guilty last week. He also pleaded not guilty to three new charges in a separate case over his handling of classified documents. The 2024 presidential candidate told supporters in Alabama and South Carolina over the weekend that his legal troubles won't slow down his campaign. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the rallies and Trump's latest legal battle. Former President Trump told supporters Saturday in Columbia, South Carolina, his poll numbers keep rising with each indictment. One more indictment and this election is closed out. The 2024 presidential candidate called it a desperate and disgraceful attempt to preserve power. Every one of these many fake charges filed against me by the corrupt Biden DOJ could have been filed two and a half years ago. They didn't want to do it two and a half years ago. They wanted to wait, and they did wait. They waited right to the middle of an election. Trump says he's only being indicted because of his position in the polls. He called the charges an outrageous criminalization of political speech. They're trying to make it illegal to question the results of an election. By the way, you have to see the pundits, even pundits that hate me with a passion, very liberal, very far left, they're saying, you can't do that. You're not going to have anything left. But only a party that cheats at elections would make it illegal to question those elections. Trump was indicted last week on four federal felony charges. The case centers on alleged efforts to change the outcome of the 2020 election to be in his favor. Trump posted on Truth Social, there's no way he can get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. He's calling for the judge to recuse themselves and says his lawyers might seek a change of venue. Trump's attorney, John Loro, said Sunday he welcomes former Vice President Mike Pence's testimony in the case and expects it could be exonerating. 
He says that's because Pence believes John Eastman, who gave legal advice to Trump at the time, was an esteemed legal scholar. And because Pence agrees that there were election irregularities, fraud, and unlawful actions at the state level. Loro says it was within the realm of free speech in a constitutional discussion for Trump to ask Pence to pause the vote. One of the last and the ultimate requests that, that President Trump made was to pause the voting mm -hmm. for 10 days to allow the states to recertify or certify uh, or audit, and, and Mr. Pence rejected that as well. Prosecutors on Friday made a filing flagging one of Trump's social media posts. Special counsel Jack Smith asked for a protective order that would restrict what Trump can share publicly about the case and evidence. He argued Trump could intimidate witnesses by improperly disclosing evidence. Laurel said Sunday his team will not agree to keeping information that's not sensitive from the press. The American people in a campaign season have a right to know what the evidence is in this case, provided that this evidence is not protected otherwise. So we're going to oppose it, as we have. Trump posted, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. The Trump campaign said Saturday the post referenced was aimed at special interest groups and super PACs and argued that it's protected speech. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Trump's legal team filed a motion asking for more time to review Smith's request for a protective order. The judge denied that request on Saturday. Trump's team has until the end of today to respond. And former Attorney General Bill Barr said Saturday he's willing to testify against Trump in the January 6th trial. He says he doesn't believe the indictment violates the First Amendment. Barr says from a prosecutor's point of view, a conspiracy crime is completed at the time it's agreed to. Legal expert and former Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz dismissed Barr's comments in an interview with Fox News. He says special counsel Jack Smith deliberately left out keywords when describing Trump's January 6th speech, namely to protest peacefully and patriotically. Dershowitz says leaving those words out was a lie by omission and that under the standards set in the indictment, Jack Smith could be indicted. And we will have more analysis on the current presidential race after the break, so stay tuned for that. Mayhem in a New York City park after a PlayStation giveaway drew thousands of young people and sparked violent clashes with police. The illegal gathering was organized by live streamer Kai Sanat. He's been charged with unlawful assembly and inciting a riot. Here's Mayor Eric Adams. We're further looking into where there's some even outside agitators. You don't come to get free Game Boys and bring smoke bombs and bring M80s and bring other disruptive items. And so uh, we believe there were some outside influencers that may have attempted to aggravate this situation. The riot unfolded last Friday as thousands poured into Union Square and nearby streets in Manhattan. A day earlier, Kai Sanat announced a huge giveaway on his social media account. Gifts included computers and PlayStation 5 consoles. Before the promotion began, some in the crowd threw projectiles at police, climbed onto the roof of a subway entrance, and jumped on top of cars. A reporter from NTD was on the scene and said he was punched for filming the riot. NYPD chief Jeffrey Madry said several police officers and civilians were injured. He said the crowd started to calm down when officers evacuated Sanat from the park. 65 people were arrested, including 30 juveniles. 
State and local politicians are raising concerns about the number of new arrivals in the U.S. Illegal immigration is said to be putting a strain on cities like Los Angeles and New York and states like Massachusetts. I spoke to an expert to examine this. Take a look. Joining me now is Simon Hankinson, Senior Research Fellow in the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for your time today, Simon. Good to be with you. As you know, Democratic New York City Council member Robert Holden says even open border progressives are now waking up to the fact that New York City must fend for itself amid the influx of illegal immigrants. Local decisions like forming sanctuary, decision, sanctuary cities and also federal policies have played into this. So what do you think needs to happen here? Well, the solution is at the federal level. It was the Biden administration that chose to open the borders, and they're going to have to close them again. They're going to have to start enforcing the law because they're not going to pay for them to be housed and educated and taken care of in New York City or anywhere else. They process people in, they give them parole, or they put them on a, in a so-called removal process that won't actually remove them, and then they buy them a ticket or let them go wherever they want in the U.S. And where do they want to go? New York. Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago, big cities with large populations um, of people that they can get in contact with and get jobs. So the, the local solution is never going to be there. You can't rent enough hotel rooms. You can't turn enough gyms and schools and parking lots into shelters. It's got to be a federal solution to enforce immigration law and secure the border. And as we look for solutions here, what is the best thing that can be done for these illegal immigrants, especially considering that the long-established interests of Americans are also important? Well, I would say the best thing that could be done for those that Biden has let in would be to give them a fast due process. Um, what's going to happen in the end, based on reports from the past, is that about 85 percent of them will not qualify for asylum. Uh, so if they're on parole and they've had their due process, they should be sent back home or to whatever safe third country they cross through on the way here. And those that do get asylum, the 15% the or whatever at the end, um, we should use whatever resources we use for, for the normal refugee process, which unfortunately have been diverted, uh, to help them settle in. And as I'm sure you're aware, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, he visited a makeshift migrant center at the Roosevelt Hotel, and he said that eventually this is going to come to a neighborhood near you. And now the city is even considering Central Park as a venue to house them. Are there any risks to relocating these migrants to places where children play? Absolutely. I mean, look, any given population of a thousand people is going to have a percentage of criminals. That's just normal in any town. You, you've got a certain percentage of crimes that get committed every year. Um, in the population that's coming over the border, they tend to uh, be younger. They tend to be more male. Um, and so the percentage that have criminal records is going to be slightly higher. Uh, and in any society, when you put a large group of young men together in a small space like a hotel with nothing to do all day, you're going to have you're going to have problems. And you've already seen a, the Row Hotel in New York, one of, I think, 100 hotels plus that the mayor has rented, has had scenes of you know, disorderly conduct, fights, uh, drugs, you know, all kinds of trash thrown around. Um, and, and that's just going to get worse. And Simon, as we look how this is impacting states, Massachusetts said there are over 1,200 families getting emergency housing in hotels, and and that's state rep Peter Durant said that that number was only 15 a year ago, and he said either we have a, had a massive spike of homelessness or that these majority of people are illegal immigrants. So what's your reaction to this? 
duh. <laughs> I mean, you know, at a certain point, uh, if you have a policy that says we'll take everybody, open borders, and then cities and states like Massachusetts and New York say that they are sanctuaries for everybody who comes, uh, it's not hard to do the math. You've got 150,000 uh, plus people coming over uh, every month. Um, a substantial portion of whom are let in, uh, where are they going to go? They're going to go to New York, they're going to go to Massachusetts, and they're going to turn up on your door or on the sidewalk, and they're going to demand services. New York City gives out uh, free bicycles, legal aid, education, food, um, and housing at the cost of, I think, $8 million a day last time I checked. Uh, you know, people aren't stupid. They're going to go where the free stuff is. Well, Simon Hankinson at the Heritage Foundation, thanks for shedding light on this complex issue. My pleasure. A hearing date is set to determine if the floating barriers on the Rio Grande are legal. A federal judge is set August 22nd for the hearing. That's right. The Justice Department is asking for a preliminary injunction and wants the barriers removed in Eagle Pass, a Texas city that borders Mexico. Governor Greg Abbott says the barriers are part of the state's efforts to curb illegal immigration at the southern border. The DOJ says Texas deployed the barriers without authorization and workers should remove them. And coming up, heavy flooding in the Alaskan capital causing widespread damage and road closures. At least two buildings were destroyed. To what lengths can you go to protect property? Store clerks face charges after repeatedly hitting an alleged robber with a stick. That story and more after the break. Good to have you back. We're continuing with a recap of events that may impact the upcoming presidential election. Prosecutors in Trump's case about his efforts to dispute election results are asking the judge to prevent him and his team from talking about any evidence publicly. Trump's attorney says he'll fight that. We take a closer look at this with a political analyst and adjunct professor. Lenny McAllister, senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation, joins us live. Lenny, it's great to have you with us. The judge is sticking to the deadline today for Trump's team to respond. Considering it's an election season, do you think the American people have a right to know about the evidence, and will that decision impact voters? I think the decision will impact voters, and I do think that the American people going into 2024 need as much information as possible. They need to understand what exactly transpired all the way back to 2020. And even if there's anything else going on beyond 2020 going backwards, you need to know about that. And that's going to be on both sides. That's going to be with President Biden as well as former President Trump. This is going to be one of the most interesting presidential election system, um, seasons in the history of America for this reason, because there's going to be investigations on both sides. You're going to have a judicial process that's going to be playing along. And in the meanwhile, you are also saying that you're going to have presidential candidates on both sides. There are going to probably be one or two other Democratic names that are come up, as well as the established Republican candidates that are out there that are not only going to be campaigning and saying why he or she should be the next president of the United States, but they're probably also going to be the ones pushing for more information from these investigations, and then their bases are going to be asking questions in the media and in social media. The, 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 the stew is just starting to get warmer. The water is going to boil very hot soon. And Lenny, you mentioned other candidates. Polls that were reported on around the time of Trump's third indictment show him with a commanding lead, about 54% of GOP voters. And some analysts say his supporters' confidence in him is unshakable. What's your reaction to this? I think right now it's a poll. I think that if people go back to 2016, 
they had Hillary Clinton winning about 47 states. We were talking about her winning Arizona. We were talking about her clearly winning states that she wouldn't even visit. And we saw how that turned out on election night. Just the same, Georgia was a reliable presidential state for Republicans over the years until 2020. You know, Florida has gone from being purple to being red. I think that polling a year before the actual election gives you one snapshot in that period of time. We've always seen that Donald Trump has a plurality of Republican voters, but that was before he had a presidential record and that was before he had indictments. I think, in, and on top of that, if you really think about this, this is before debates as well. Once we start going into debate season, again, a full year before the midterm, before, excuse me, the general election in the fall of next year, once you start looking at all those other things coming into play, we'll see how these poll numbers go. Again, we don't know what other information is going to come out during the judicial process. We don't know what other things are going to be said by other candidates or by former President Trump. And all that's going to play into what the poll numbers look like. He's always had a plurality, but will a plurality against maybe one other candidate that coalesces the anti-Trump vote be enough to win the nomination, unlike in 16, where he ran initially against 15 other people, and then even as he was going into the later states, still had Kasich and Cruz in the race, which was just enough to split the anti-Trump vote and allow him to win with a plurality to get the nomination. Yes, and of course, polls are nothing more than an index. Let's look at the other frontrunner here. Hunter Biden's business partner, Devin Archer, said Hunter's tactics were an abuse of soft power, having his dad on the speakerphone there. But he says business was never discussed on those calls. So how do you think these revelations are going to impact voters who are undecided? I, I think that, one, un unfortunately, and this is something that's also unique in American politics over the last, I'd say, five to ten years, there's not a lot of undecided voters. People have made up their mind that even if they don't really like the Bidens, they hate Trump. Therefore, they're going to have an anti-Trump vote. Just the same, there are people that would not look at Joe Biden and they would say, this is a guy that ran for president multiple times. He kind of slipped and fell into the presidency in 2020 amid a pandemic. They still don't believe he won that race. And now you see all this other stuff coming up with his son. There's no way they're going to vote for him. I don't think the ongoing information coming out about Hunter Biden's going to sway a lot of people because there's not a lot of people in the middle. And those of, that are actually in the middle, to be honest with you, they're going to vote their pocketbook. If the economy continues to rev fairly well, if jobs continue to grow at a, a decent pace and we don't have a recession, it's going to lean towards the incumbent. Let's zoom in on a subset of these voters here. Commentator Lawrence Jones says young voters will be key for candidates looking to secure the White House. What will the Democratic and Republican nominees need to do to win the young vote? I think the young vote will make a difference, but again, I think it's going to make a difference from an economic standpoint. I think if there's more information that comes out with the Trump case in regards to alleged illegalities, I think that might be enough to sway the younger voter. But let's just be honest. These are two of the oldest candidates to ever run for the presidency. So if you have a Biden-Trump rematch, that's not going to excite young voters quite like they were excited in 2008 or in 1960. Let's just be honest about that. And unless the economy really goes sideways, I don't expect them to get as involved as they did in 2008 or 1960. Now, with that said, 2020 was a little different, but again, well, let's not wish another pandemic on the world. That was a unique scenario because of George Floyd 
and the pandemic that brought people to the polls that wouldn't normally come to the polls in a normal, regularly functioning society. I don't expect the young people to be as involved in other election years, but we never know. We're still a full year out. Well, it was great speaking with you. Lenny McAllister at the Commonwealth Foundation, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. And over to Alaska now, where at least two buildings were destroyed and residents of several others were evacuated in the capital Juneau on Saturday. Officials said flooding occurred after water released from a glacier-dammed lake. The Mendenhall River flooded Saturday after a rapid release of water from Suicide Basin above Alaska's capital city. Such floods happen when glaciers melt and pour massive amounts of waters into nearby lakes. City officials said that river levels were falling on Sunday, but river banks remain highly unstable. Some roadways have been blocked by silt and debris from the flooding. Water release from the basin has caused periodic flooding in the area since 2011. But according to the National Weather Service, Saturday's maximum water level exceeded the previous record flood stage set in July 2016. Seven Massachusetts state troopers won their COVID vaccine refusal case and must be reinstated with back pay. An independent arbitrator ruled in favor of the state troopers on last Friday. They will receive full back pay dating from 2022. The independent arbitrator found that former Governor Charlie Baker and the state police department violated the troopers' rights to anti-discrimination and affirmative action. A press release said troopers weren't given reasonable accommodations for their sincerely held religious beliefs. Store clerks who beat a robber with a stick in California are under investigation for assault. Entities Daniel Monahan has an update on the ongoing case and a warning some viewers might find the following footage disturbing. A video of the attempted theft recently went viral. A man can be seen in a 7-Eleven store in Stockton emptying shelves full of cigarettes and tobacco products into a large trash can. The store owner seems to tell the man to stop, but to no avail. Some tense moments ensue when the attempted robber flashes what may be a knife he is carrying in his back pocket. The man yells at the store clerk to back up and then continues to dump more merchandise into the can. A man filming the incident advises the clerk that resistance is futile. As the man tries to exit the shop, he tells the clerk to get out of the way. One of the clerks then attempts to stop the alleged thief, and another clerk begins to strike the man on the legs and buttocks. The man yells, okay, apparently wanting the beating to stop. Whether he has already been disarmed is unknown. The store clerks say the same man robbed their store two other times, also threatening them. Stockton police say they are investigating the man the clerks beat for robbery and the clerks for assault. California has become a frequent source of viral shoplifting videos. Many stores like Target or Walgreens have locked down entire aisles. Critics say the culprit is Prop 47, which downgraded crimes like theft of goods under $950 from felonies to misdemeanors. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, 11 military vessels from China and Russia spotted off the coast of Alaska. Find out how the U.S. responded. And tensions in West Africa continue as coup leaders in Niger close its airspace and ignore an ultimatum from nearby countries. That and more after the break.
Welcome back. Up to 11 Chinese and Russian warships approached U.S. territory off the coast of Alaska last week. Senator Dan Sullivan confirmed the news over the weekend. He says U.S. destroyers were sent to shadow the patrol. The warships were part of a joint Russian-Chinese naval operation off the Aleutian Islands last week. It's deemed as the biggest combined Russian-Chinese battle group to ever approach U.S. shores. Sullivan called the move another reminder that we have entered a new era of authoritarian aggression led by the dictators of Beijing and Moscow. Beijing claimed the operation was not directed at any third party. Sullivan says Chinese and Russian vessels came similarly close to Alaska last summer. A U.S. Coast Guard ship encountered the vessels, but there was no robust response from Washington back then. Sullivan says he's pleased the Navy reacted this time. And moving to the disputed South China Sea, the Philippines slammed China for firing a water cannon at one of its ships on Saturday. The country's foreign ministry called it a dangerous and illegal practice. He says it put the lives of the Filipino crew at risk and violated international law. According to the Philippine military, two Filipino supply ships were heading to 2nd Thomas Shoal in the disputed waters when a Chinese Coast Guard vessel approached and blocked them with a powerful water cannon. The Philippine government has summoned Chinese ambassador this morning to convey a strongly worded diplomatic protest. Washington also renewed its warning that it will defend its longtime ally if Philippine ships come under armed attack in the South China Sea and elsewhere. Beijing claims sovereignty over almost the entire South China Sea, but the assertion has been strongly contested internationally. Niger closed its airspace on Sunday following the passing of a key deadline. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the developments in the West African nation, the site of a recent coup. The move came as coup leaders defied a deadline set by the West African regional bloc ECOWAS to restore the ousted president. They say any attempt to fly over the country will be met with an energetic and immediate response. International airlines diverted flights around the country's airspace on Sunday. Regional tensions have mounted since mutinous soldiers overthrew Niger's democratically elected president nearly two weeks ago. They then detained him and installed General Abdurrahman Chiani as head of state. Chiani was head of the Presidential Guard and is accused of leading the coup with several members of his unit. The coup is believed to have been triggered by a power struggle between him and the president who was allegedly about to fire him. Defense chiefs of ECOWAS previously agreed on military action, including when and where to strike. That is, if Niger's detained President Mohamed Bazoum was not released and reinstated by Sunday. The bloc's military threat has triggered fears of further conflict in the region. The possible intervention could also be complicated as juntas in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso vowed to back the Nigerian coup. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now to some short headlines from around the world. Track restoration work is underway a day after a passenger train derailed in Pakistan. At least 30 people were killed and more than 90 injured. Ten cars went off the tracks. Accidents on Pakistan's decaying rail system are common. Cleanup operations are underway in Slovenia after what its prime minister called the worst ever natural disaster in the country's history. Devastating floods killed three people last week and destroyed roads, bridges and houses. Two-thirds of the small alpine country were affected. 
A violent hailstorm hit northeastern Italy yesterday, whitewashing the roads like snow. Video shows roads covered by a thick blanket of hail. The country suffered deadly landslides and floods in May that killed nine people. A Polish pipeline operator detected a leak in a major pipeline over the weekend that carries oil from Russia to Europe. The Druzhba oil pipeline is one of the world's largest. It can carry two million barrels per day. The operator says there was no health threats to local residents. And our hearts go out to the people in Pakistan, of course, and the, hopefully the people in Italy were able to stay in for the most part and stay safe. Right. So many things happening in Slovenia as well, so yes. hopefully everybody is doing all right. Yes. And still to come, Elon Musk vows to pay legal fees for anyone who was unfairly treated by their employer over a Twitter post. The possible cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg might be streamed on X. We have the latest on the matchup when we come back. Good to have you back. Do you f feel you've been mistreated by your employer because of a social media post? Elon Musk may help you out. He says he will foot the legal bills of those treated unfairly because of posts on X, formerly known as Twitter. In a post on Saturday, Musk pledged to support potential lawsuits regardless of their scale and said there would be no limit to funding legal bills. He added he would start a PR campaign against companies who punish employees for their posts. Musk's offer follows his lawsuit against the Center for Countering Digital Hate. He alleges the organization created a scare campaign to drive away advertisers by claiming hate speech has increased since Musk took over X. The organization's founder replied that Musk is trying to shoot the messenger who highlights toxic content on the X platform. The possible cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg might be streamed on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. That's according to Elon Musk. He posted on social media that he was lifting weights throughout the day, preparing for the fight. Musk added that all proceeds will go to charity for veterans. The two big tech billionaires seemingly agreed to participate in a fight last June, but neither Musk nor Zuckerberg has confirmed whether an agreement has been reached on the fight. The tech moguls have been egging each other into a mixed martial arts match since June. When a user on X asked Musk the point of the fight, Musk responded, it's a civilized form of war. Men love war. A thief in California took some time to pet the family dog before stealing an expensive bike. It was all caught on security video last month. Take a look. The video shows the burglary suspect about to leave on a family's electric bike when his friendly golden retriever came out from the house. He stops and gives the dog lots of attention and pets. You can also hear the suspect say, you're the coolest dog I've ever known. I love you too. Police in San Diego say they're releasing the video to help find the suspect. Wow, he was so happy to see him too. Yeah, He's lots like, of oh, pets. Are you a friend? <laughs> no, he wasn't. <laughs> well, moving on, a Florida man lost at sea was rescued after a torturous two-day ordeal that nearly cost him his life. The Coast Guard says Charlie Gregory went missing Thursday night after he went out fishing in his 12-foot boat. 
His troubles began when a wave crashed over his vessel, knocking him out of the boat and partially submerging it. He made it back into the boat, but it was quickly pulled many miles out to sea. For almost two days, he battled sunburn, dehydration, multiple jellyfish stings, and freezing nighttime temperatures. He also spotted sharks swimming near his location. Then finally on Saturday, he was spotted by aircraft, then rescued by a Coast Guard ship and taken to a hospital. His father says he's expected to be okay and that the moral of the story is to never give up. A Coast Guard spokesman said it shows the importance of having a life jacket, signal devices, and an emergency personal locator on board at all times. Experts estimate that massive amounts of money are being wasted in the healthcare supply chain and that it's a key reason why America's healthcare costs are so high. We speak with a 25-year-old college grad who, right after graduating from college, is working hard to fix the crisis. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more for us. America is infamous for its high healthcare costs. One key reason they're so high, huge amounts of money wasted in the healthcare supply chain because of too many middlemen, outdated systems, and too many expenses involved with storing and transporting inventory. 25-year-old UPenn grad Luca Yankopoulos is making big strides in helping resolve this crisis. Before discovering the problem, he and his college friends were troubled by news of medical supply shortages during the pandemic, so they voluntarily worked to connect suppliers with hospitals in need. They later turned it into a business, buying medical supplies and reselling them, often to other resellers. This is when they discovered the healthcare supply chain crisis. I thought that I could you know, make a positive difference. But we're seeing our products getting sold ultimately to end users at like 5x the cost of what we were purchasing in that. And we said, this isn't the way to do this. There's got to be a better way. Luca says the big firms don't want to change the system because they want to keep close track of all their inventory because they're too big and because they're afraid. Change involves risk. And in healthcare, risk can mean death. That's why Luca and his friends built Grapevine a software platform in which suppliers and hospitals can meet directly. The platform then uses AI to lower the alarming amount of supply chain inefficiencies and cut down costs. Our AI-based software automates supplier practices, payments, logistics, shipping, and delivery to drive down the prices of medical supplies. We've reimagined the healthcare supply chain and Grapevine eliminates waste and unnecessary costs with the aims of saving lives. Luca now works with hundreds of manufacturers to slash prices on thousands of medical products. These include implantable medical devices, intravenous fluids, pacemakers, band-aids, catheters, and scalpels. He plans to constantly add new products until he's lowering costs on every device used in a hospital. An interesting application, and there's entrepreneurs identifying a problem and finding a solution. That's awesome, yeah, a much needed one. Yes. And coming up, we have updates on the women's soccer team and the return of Simone Biles. And a woman braves the elements on the survival adventure of a lifetime and a chance to win half a million dollars when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. The U.S. women's soccer team is going home early for the first time in over 30 years. They dropped the match with Sweden on Sunday by a score of 5-4. to four. America's women's team has been dominant in the world scene for decades. The loss has fans wondering what went wrong. 
Sweden took the World Cup by surprise. After a scoreless 120 minutes, the U.S. lost on penalty kicks. The penalty round was marked by two missed opportunities by the U.S. Defender Julie Ertz said after the game, penalties are the worst. The quest for a three-peat is now over. Many of the team members will retire. So this era of women's soccer is now ending. Sweden will face Japan in its next match this Friday. Also in sports news, Simone Biles is back, winning and providing inspiration after a two-year break from gymnastics competitions. Her fans couldn't be happier to see her back after her struggles with a mental block that forced her to withdraw from the Tokyo Olympics. The four-time Olympic champion wowed a cheering crowd at a packed arena in Chicago yesterday. She dominated the competition and won the overall by a large margin. The win marks the first time she competed since taking a break two years ago. She showed none of the issues that plagued her during the 2020 Olympics. She is now qualified for the U.S. Championship. She has not yet disclosed her plans for next year's Paris Olympics, but says she feels really good about where she is mentally and physically. Well, I definitely say you kind of have to take that mental break, because if not, obviously your body will decide for you, and that's kind of what mine did in Tokyo. Um, it was the worst timing, but obviously I'm very happy what happened just because I got to go and really focus on myself and I'm still continuing to work on myself and go to therapy and make sure everything is all in line so that in the gym we can just focus on gym. And she's not only a legend in gymnastics, she's become a positive role model for people worldwide. How admirable. And now fans are wondering if she will try to qualify for the U.S. Olympic team. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to survive out on your own deep in nature? Ten contestants on the History Channel show called Alone did just that in northern Saskatchewan, Canada, a place home to vicious predators like bears and wolves and bone-chilling temperatures. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with contestant Melanie Sawyer, who competed for the half-million-dollar prize. The deeper you go into your own mind, the harder it is to get back out. Alone contestants have to survive on their own in the wilderness with 10 survival items they choose from a list. They build their own shelters, hunt and forage for food, and keep warm and cook using primitive fire starting methods. With no camera crew, the contestants have to film themselves as they hunt, forage and struggle to stay alive. Melanie Sawyer was born in England where she spent her childhood in the countryside. Ever since I was very young, I have always been fascinated with nature more than hanging out with humans. It's just something that's deep in your spirit and your soul is to um, just look into what is already here. So since I was a kid, I was already wandering off into the woods and watching animals and looking at plants and just marveling in just how amazing it is. With a load of debt after completing college, Sawyer signed with a modeling agency in London where she became the face of 88. Got rid of the debt, traveled the world, and uh, really had an incredible 10 years. It was, a, it was a very, very amazing time. Sawyer says nature is an amazing gift. It's an incredible source of knowledge and food and medicine and uh, should be definitely focused on more in society and kids in in general, I think, should uh, should definitely get in there and, and learn more about it. The survivalist says she has watched alone since its first season. She was originally approached by a casting agent on Instagram two years ago, but was still too busy with her children. Now find your corners. 
But last year they asked again and um, I was like, yes, hell yes, let's go. Let's do this thing. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and it was good. Sawyer appreciates the survival skills and the raw honesty of contestants as they battle themselves and the elements. It's an incredible opportunity to test your skills. And especially for me as a historical forager and a living historian, I really, really, really enjoyed um, putting that knowledge um, into uh, perspective, being out there with uh, my, my 10 items and uh, the wilderness. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. My legs are so weak. A common theme you encounter watching alone is the intense hunger most contestants face, going days on end without eating. But that's something Sawyer's study of foraging helped her avoid. Ah, smells amazing. Foraging, again, for me, put me in a position where I never had stomach rumbles. I was never, ever hungry at any point during my time with my mantra of, um, you know, calories spent for calorie reward kind of thing, really focused on my carbs and my starches. So my mosses and my lichens, you know, my, my rock tripes, there were a lot of mushrooms out there. But that doesn't mean Sawyer wasn't hunting or fishing. The survivalist decided early on to wait until the snows came so she could watch the red squirrel dens and know where to set up her snares. I'll never forget my first day of snow and walking up on my snares and seeing a squirrel right there. Um, it was like, yes, I knew that uh, the squirrel season had come and I knew I was going to be uh, passively uh, harvesting meat without having to do too much work. When she's not out conquering the elements, you may find Sawyer through her Thunderhawk Living History School, which teaches and reenacts at museums, schools, and historical locations on the eastern coast. Thunderhawk focuses on historical accuracy. It, it focuses on um, the items, the accoutrements, the clothing, the foods. Um, all of those things are as much as we can get 100% correct to how it was in those days. And it really has a huge difference to how children learn. There are three remaining contestants on the hit survival series alone. New episodes of season 10 air on Thursdays at 9, 8 central, only on the History Channel. The season finale is on Thursday, August 17th. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Wow, she really put herself to quite a test. And her foraging skills sound, they look really impressive. I mean, I've only foraged in my fridge so far. <laughs> well, and she sounds like she's a pretty crafty hunter with those squirrel traps. I wonder how many squirrels she's caught. Oh, yeah, right. And lots of opportunity to do that here in New York City as well, although not recommended. Yes, well, and speaking of foraging, you know, I've done quite a bit of mushroom hunting up in the Northwoods. Oh, would that be dangerous? Yeah, well, yeah, I had it verified. But even people who know what they're doing can be at risk. So you got to be careful. Mm, that's right. And coming up, we take a look at a man who, despite being dealt a harsh card, managed to overcome intense hardship and in the process found the love of his life. So stay tuned. Good to have you back. Positivity is key to overcoming anything. And sometimes it's the hard things that turn one's life around. One couple is living testament of this. They've proven anything can be accomplished with the right mindset and determination. Let's take a look. Sometimes it's the hardships in life that lead people to better shores. 
This certainly was the experience of Jared Nida. In 2011, while on vacation in Mexico, Jared had an accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. When you first jump into the ocean, it can be a little chilly. So I had the mindset to just kind of dive straight in and get over that. And I went running down the beach. I dropped a Bluetooth speaker and barreled straight into the ocean and unbeknownst to me, right into a sandbar. So I was immediately paralyzed completely. Uh, I could feel the, uh, the waves brushing my face up against the sandbar that had just broken my neck. Um, but I couldn't move anything. But Jared was determined. He told his doctors flat out that he considered his condition unacceptable. He was faced with intense challenges trying to get accustomed to being paralyzed. But then eight years into his rehabilitation, fate led him to meet Hannah, who is now his wife. Uh, we met through a mutual friend. One of my friends from work was actually helping Jared on the weekends. And we went to 4th Street Live, which is just an outdoor area here where they had open karaoke. And that was our first meeting and what ended up kind of being our first date. We just started talking and we didn't stop all night. So it kind of just went from there. The two felt an instant connection and started dating. As their bond and trust deepened, Hannah became Jar's primary carer. Ours is very different from other relationships around us. It's a give and take, obviously, and then it's finding our roles. So yeah. our roles are so unique and so different from other relationships. Um, I being the only caregiver. And then also for Jared, it's what he can contribute and how he kind of runs our household. And, um, I, you know, I always say that I'm the physical. I move things around, but he's very much the logistics and um, managing just our day to day. Hannah says is his positive outlook on life that attracts her to Jared. The two married on the 10th anniversary of Jared's accident in June 2021. At the core of Jared's mindset lies a motto, love wins, stay positive. The pair now helps others with paralysis. They operate a social media channel called Positively Paralyzed reflective of Jared's mindset that everything can be turned into something positive. Everybody says he's so positive, which is why I sarcastically suggested our Instagram handle now, which is Positively Paralyzed. But it really is, you know, it's a mindset. And Jared always says, the only thing I can control is my attitude. And he really lives by that. And I think that's done him really well. Anna Rodriguez, NTD News. It is inspiring that he's able to stay positive throughout all of that. That's right. And that mindset, it sounds, probably sounds more easy than it is, right? That mindset must be so hard to keep. So Yeah, and off. Hannah's very supportive. The caring can be a lot of work. Hmm. It's nice that they found a way to complement each other that well, logistics. And um, um, I think she said she's the person that moved things around, right? Yeah, they each provide yeah. a unique element to the relationship. That's great. All right. Uh, what a great note to end our program on. That's it for today. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. As usual, write us an email if you have anything that you want to let us know. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.